0: Let's Turn it up. You got me? <laughs> all right, good morning. I'm glad to see you all here and I'm sure we have some groups that'll be coming in, but we're going to go ahead and um, get started roughly on time. Um, so as we begin, a couple of things that I want to tell you about. First of all, um, I sound horrible. And I might cough, but I'm not sick, and I'm not going to get you sick. I'm having a reaction to some medication that I'm going to have taken care of in a little while. But um, it just makes me sound horrible. So forgive my horrible sound and try to hear the message and not the messenger. If you can, I'll try to remember to cover if I cough. If I cough, I'll be more aware of, try to be more aware of covering the microphone than my mouth so that y'all don't have a worry. I've got all kinds of things up here to help me, though, so hopefully I'll get through it. So the next thing is, as we start, I want to just take a few minutes and set the scene for where we're at. Um, Last week, in chapter 1, we saw the incredible story of Paul's apostleship. We saw that Paul was called to be an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father. His apostleship was not man-based or man-driven. We saw his path to becoming an apostle Through human context, through the revelation that he received and when he spent time in the desert, we saw Paul's defense of the gospel he was preaching as being the true gospel and the same gospel of Jesus Christ as the other apostles. We learned that false brothers or Judaizers have tried to discredit Paul by encouraging the Gentile believers to follow the Jewish law in order to have salvation. As we move to chapter 2 today, um, we continue to see Paul's defense of his apostleship that began in chapter 1, verse 10, and continues through chapter 2, verse 14. And we begin to see his defense of the gospel in chapter 2, 15 through 21, and continuing into chapter 3. So let's pray, and we'll dive into chapter 2. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for um, giving us your word that makes it clear to us what you want us to know as followers of you. I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for your son, who is your gospel, the one true gospel, Lord. I pray that the words that I say today will be true and that, that, that if they are not, that ears will be stopped up, but that ears will hear what you want them to hear in this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So what exactly... Is Paul so fiercely defending in this chapter and throughout this letter as well as other letters he has written? He's defending the gospel. But what exactly was this gospel? It was coming under such attack at the churches in Galatia. Perhaps you have heard the term solos Christus. This term means Christ alone and is fundamental to the Christian faith and to Paul's preaching of the one true gospel— This gospel is summed up in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The gospel was God's plan to reconcile man to himself. And this is solos Christos, Christ alone. And with that foundation, I want you to keep that foundation in your mind as we go through this chapter today. Because that is the true gospel, Christ alone. So if you are a grace of an attender, you will often hear how the Bible is written in indicative statements followed by imperative statements. And an indicative is a sign or an indication of something that has been done. An imperative is something to do because of the indicative. The indicative is empowers the imperative so it's something that's been done something that to be done and so today I want to take you through and want you to see six indicatives that we see in Galatians 2 and I want you to see imperatives that may be in other parts of scripture that relate to them and um I also want to show you what our response to these indicatives should be and um I've kind of labeled that our instructions so we're going to have imperatives indicatives and instructions So the first imperative indicative we see is found in Galatians 2, 4, and 5. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The indicative that I see here is that the gospel is constantly in danger of being lost, And it needs to be defended. The imperative is the actual defense of the gospel. We are right in the middle of seeing Paul defending the gospel in Galatians 1 and 2. So how does he defend the gospel? He clarifies what the gospel is. In Galatians 1, 4, we see where he said, "Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God. our God and Father. That's the gospel summed up. So Paul clarifies the gospel. He then speaks from personal experience, and you can see that in Galatians 1, 11 through 23, where he talks about his revelation from Christ after his, after his experience on the road to Damascus. We see how Christ revealed himself and the other apostles approved of him. So he is speaking from personal experience there. He also argued the Old Testament, and we can see that in Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He had eyewitnesses. Paul reminded them of those who had seen Jesus and their eyewitness accounts. He had partnered with the other apostles, and then he also had eyewitnesses from the general public. Um, we see in 1 Corinthians fifteen six. Then he, Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So he referred those he was teaching to eyewitnesses. So from this indicative and this imperative, what can we surmise to be our instruction? I would offer to you 1 Peter 3, 15, and 16 as the supporting scripture for our response. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So what do we need to do? We need to know the gospel and know the scripture to back it up. We need to share your testimony. I challenged my group last week, and we didn't get to it today, but to write down their stories. Write your story down and be willing to share it. Share your conversion story, just like Paul had a conversion story. We all have a conversion story. Some, mine's not quite as dramatic as Paul's, some aren't quite as dramatic, but there's still a conversion story. So, so write your conversion story down, but update it. Keep that, but update it with what God's doing for you now. Because there are pe- people are going to ask you, according to this verse, where do you get your hope from? And you want to be prepared to tell them. Just like Paul shared his personal experiences, be willing to share your personal experiences. We have to be transparent in order to defend the gospel. Know and understand what led to the gospel. Y'all, this is counterintuitive to a lot of the things that are going on in our society today. Um, There are evangelical ministers denouncing the Old Testament. If you listened to the link that um, Kim had for the sermon for last week's lesson by Martin Lloyd-Jones, we can all agree that from his voice he sounded a little older. But he said in that, he was talking about how... People were denouncing the Old Testament. People didn't want to have anything to do with the Old Testament because they thought that it showed God in a in a different light and they wanted to know God is love. So I got interested and tried to look up the date of that sermon since it's the same thing we're hearing today. And he died in 1981. So that was before 1981. And really, here we see it in Galatians in, what, 47 to 49 AD where people were denouncing the scripture we need the scripture. We need the Old Testament. Without knowledge of the Old Testament, we cannot fully understand God. We cannot see our need for a Savior. And we can't clearly point others to who God is and what he has done through Christ. Um, we also we need to know the stories of our biblical forefathers and current co- covenant family members who can vouch through their own experiences what Christ has done for them. This means we can't live in isolation. We must be willing to share our stories and hear other stories so that as we encounter the lost, we have the miraculous stories of salvation and transformation to lead them to the one true gospel. So the second indicative that we see in this chapter is in verses 7 through 9. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, So we see that the indicative here is that the same gospel, the same gospel, was entrusted to Paul, James, John, Cephas, and Barnabas, who each had their own individual role to play in spreading the gospel. Paul is real, real clear about showing that he was to go to the Gentiles and Peter was to go to the Jews, but it was the same gospel. The imperative for this can be found in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The apostles knew the work of God when they saw it. They rejoiced in the talents and the successes of others. They were supportive of one another. They understood that the gospel is a partnership, but recognized that each man had his own legitimate sphere of ministry. Each man had his own unique call. So what are our instructions? How does this affect our ministry? If you are in the kingdom of God, you have a ministry. Whether you've identified it or not, you have a ministry. So how does it affect it? Um, Let's look at Ephesians 11 to see what Paul tells us about our roles in ministry. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. We are all representing the same gospel, the one true gospel in our kingdom work. Whatever differences there may be in terms of experience, emphasis, or style, there is no difference in content. And I thought about our Bible study when I um, was studying this. And, you know, one of the things that is unique to this Bible study is that we have several teaching leaders. We have several people who teach each week rather than having just one person teach everything, and one of the joys is that is that we have so many women who feel led to do that and are willing to put themselves forward to do that, Um, but one of the other neat things about that is that we all have different styles. I'm an outline teacher. If you were to look at my notes, everything has a bullet point. Um, You're going to hear a lot of alliteration from me, you know, Imperatives, civil str- uh, Instructions, that sort of thing. Um, we have some teachers that are more narrative in their approach. We have teachers that are more historical in their approach. We have teachers that are willing to get to the down and dirty and share the personal things that they're going on right at that moment. We have teachers that aren't quite as willing to do that and focus on the scripture alone. And they're all right because their message is the same. We may have different delivery, we may may have different styles, and we do, but we all stand unified on the gospel. And that is how we're all supposed to be in the kingdom, unified on what the true gospel is and ministering in the way that God has called us to minister, minister. So another thing, our ministry, our role in the kingdom is assigned by God we saw where Paul told us that they were approved by God for their ministry. And so just a few things about that. That can be changing with our life life circumstances. So if God called you when you were 12 to teach Sunday school to 2-year-olds, he might change that when you're have a two-year-old running around your house um you know you might change it at some time at some point in your life so you're not you you we should always be aware and looking for what god is calling us to do and then another thing and this is kind of like personal soapbox um sometimes the call to a role in ministry can come to the come with the call to ministry from servants of christ we as a society, as a church society, not a Grace, I'm not saying Grace of Anne, a universal church society, have found quite a few little catchphrases to use when someone calls us and asks us to partner with them in membership and uh, ministry, whether it be teaching children, um, filling boxes or whatever. We tend to say, let me pray about that. And a lot of times, let's just be real here. That means I can't think of an excuse right this minute. Let me go see if I can come up with some reason why I'm not supposed to do this. Uh, I mean, I'm just being real. <laughs> and y'all are all laughing because you know it's true. Um, another one we say is, oh, that's not where my gifts lie. Not, yeah, that, that's not where my gifts lie. Do, do y'all know, I'm going to tell you, I am not, I do not have the spiritual gift of teaching. I honestly believe that I do not have the spiritual gift of teaching. But I have a call to teach. And what I experience in the weeks when I am preparing to teach is I experience my total and complete reliance on the Holy Spirit and God. If I did not, this would be a hot mess. Um, But God has called me to do this and he will equip me to do it even though it's not my primary spiritual gift. My primary spiritual gift is administration, so I've checked the roll while I've been up here. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) But it's important to know that sometimes the call comes with the call. And how do we know that that's the case? We know that when our spirit is stirred, when the Holy Spirit quickens when that question is asked, it may not quicken to say yes right away, but if we pay attention to the quickening of the Holy Spirit, if we're in the Word and we are allowing the Holy Spirit to control our lives, sometimes we're just going to say, yes, I'm coming, and not have to say, let me pray about that. Um, we always have a role to play in advancing the gospel. I've already told you, we always have a role to play in advancing the gospel. No ministry is a ministry. So if you are not participating In an active ministry on behalf of the kingdom, you are participating in a ministry against the kingdom. Um, We each have our unique call. There is diversity of message, but only where there is unity of message. We must remember that there is no fellowship in the gospel. Where there is no fellowship in the gospel, there can be no partnership in ministry. Um, That's a hard one to take. And I was thinking about it uh, because we are also called to be a part of the world. We're called to witness to the lost, but we are not called to minister with the lost. And that is a distinction. And the best example that I could come up for that, with for that, as I was thinking through that, is <coughs> <coughs> sorry. here in Germantown, we have a huge Mormon population. Over at Houston High School, there's a lot of Mormons. Y'all, they're wonderful. They do family. I envy the way, I wish I could do family the way they do family. I, they have work ethics that are unbelievable. They are kind, they are moral. There are so many good things about Mormons. <coughs> and my children can go to school with them and my children can play sports with them, and I can go to lunch with their moms, but I cannot enter into ministry with them. And the difference is, and the reason for that is because we represent a different gospel. And if we are doing something in the name of the ministry of the kingdom, we have to be united in that, or it's not effective. Okay, I feel like I want to say, can y'all understand y'all got that? (laughs) All right, Imperative number three in Galatians 2 is in verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, and these are Jewish people that came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step (coughs) with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Y'all, there are ethical are moral imperatives that follow the gospel but there are no ethnic distinctions in the gospel there are ethical imperatives that follow the gospel but no i gotta look at the word ethnic so there's no greek no jew but there are moral differences peter was called to the apostle with to the gospel with the jews he had eaten with the Gentiles after the vision that was recorded in Acts 10. <coughs> and you remember that's when a sheet was let down with all the foods and God said, Don't call anything I've created unclean. Everything is permissible. That event was preparing Peter for an encounter he was going to have later in that chapter with the Gentile on the road. But he went on and was eating with Gentiles, which was fine. He was fellowshipping with those who shared in the gospel. But he pulled back from that when he let his fear of the Jews pressure him into an awkward situation. (coughs) I'm so sorry. Give me one minute. (coughs) In effect, Peter was ashamed of the gospel. When push came to shove... He did not stand his ground for the truth that all Christians are saved by the same grace. So Paul had to confront Peter because he was not standing on the truth of the gospel alone. So what can we learn? What are our instructions from Paul and Peter? <coughs> we can learn not to be ashamed of the gospel. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. We learned that even great Christians can fall into sin, sometimes more than once. <laughs> Peter had fallen into sin at least three times before this incident, and you can see that recorded in Matthew 26, 69 through 75. Can you all still understand me? We need to have the courage To defend the gospel against all opposition, including opposition that comes within the church. We need to hold each other accountable to the truth of the gospel. When the fear of people overcomes our fear of God, we are likely to deny the gospel. We must have fellowship with anyone and everyone who is in fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. If we refuse to have fellowship with them, then our actions deny the gospel, no matter what we say. We are making a distinction that God himself does not make. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The indicative is that the gospel is good news that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ and not by works of the law. (coughs) The imperative is that we are acceptable to God, not by keeping the law ourselves, but by trusting in the only man who ever did keep it, Jesus Christ. What does that mean to us? We have the approval of God through Jesus. We can stop, I'm speaking to myself, seeking approval of man and acceptance through legalism. I sometimes say I'm a recovering legalist. Being bound to the law for our salvation keeps us in spiritual bondage. But, Jesus, he came to fulfill the law and to set us free. He is the only one who can completely obey the law. We experience spiritual freedom only through him, through Christ and Christ alone. John 8.36 says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's good news, y'all. It's not on us. Jesus has brought us out of spiritual bondage into spiritual freedom. And that's the gospel. And that's good news. So we're going to end our study today um, looking at the last two indicatives. And they are both found in our memory verse. Anybody want to volunteer? I'm just kidding. (laughs) I even have it written down. Galatians two twenty. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The first indicative we see here is that through the gospel, we are identified with Christ and his work on the cross. That's supported by Romans 1-4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. The imperative is that because we are identified with Christ in the cross, we are to walk in newness of life. So what is newness of life? When When we are a new creation in Christ... Christ gives distinctive shape to our moral life. It informs, the gospel informs a believer's feelings, thoughts, and actions towards one another and toward other created things and towards God. We are saved by the gospel alone, but we are saved. We are free because the gospel alone from spiritual freedom, and we are free to obey God's moral law as a result of that um the law does not bring obedience to the law does not bring salvation but salvation brings obedience to the law um in as much as we are able as a new creation we have god's power to help us resist temptation the final indicative is also in verse 20 the love of christ for sinners is made evident in the gospel I see the imperative for this in First John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Our instructions come from Matthew 22, 37, and 38. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is the big commandment for new, uh, for new creation, creations in Christ. But y'all, y'all want to hear something neat? I thought this was so cool. If you were with us last semester, we were studying Deuteronomy, and you'll remember that this verse was also given as instructions to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 6-4 as they waited to go into the Promised Land. It was. It had a different word. It said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your mind, and all your strength. And as I was looking at that, it made me think that under the law, the Israelites had to rely on their own strength to draw them to God. But we don't rely on our strength. We rely on the Holy Spirit in our soul to be re- reconciled with God. And I just thought, one, I felt like that came full circle for me, and I was so thankful that God set it up, that we studied that. I think I actually taught on that in the fall, that we studied that in the fall, and now we're studying it here. And if we look at it, we can so clearly see the difference. At first glance, it looks the same, but there's a huge difference. They relied on their own strength, and we rely on the strength of Christ. We are not bound by law for salvation, but rather we are free to obey this command because Jesus has fulfilled the law as a gift of grace to us. This is the gospel. This is good, good news. Let's pray. Father, it is overwhelming that you would design a redemptive plan for your people. Um, I'm just filled with gratitude for you, for you, for that, Lord. I know that um, without you, I would be nothing, nothing, nothing at all but a sinner. But in your power, through your son, I am still a sinner. But I am a sinner that has the Holy Spirit to guide me. I am a sinner that is saved by grace. And I thank you so much for that distinction. And I pray for that distinction for anyone that's in this room that doesn't understand what it means to be saved by grace, Lord. May it be clearer today. May they be able to experience your grace in such a way that they can continue to recognize themselves as a sinner, but use not their own power to overcome it, but the power given by you through Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.